All right. Hello and welcome to Required Reading, a podcast that revisits the most impactful books from our childhood. I'm your host, Erin Bowles. I'm a writer and actor. Our guest today is Katie Wilkerson. They are from a small town in middle Georgia. They grew up doodling daydreams and volunteering at the community theater. When the opportunity came to work in film as a production designer, they felt they had finally found their calling. And now as an LA local, Katie is a member of IOTSE Local 800, working in film and TV, and a freelance designer who has created hours of short form content such as commercials, shorts, and music videos, and has designed two feature films, including Jesse Smollett's upcoming The Last Holiday, available on BET later this year. Katie is also a writer, poet, and illustrator whose first poetry collection will be published early 2024 and available where books are sold. I did not know that. Holy shit. Congratulations. Oh, hey, thanks. I've been in the process of publishing for like two years. My manuscript has been done and I'm just trying to motivate myself to finish illustrating, which has been difficult while working. But But that's amazing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm very excited. Title pending. Well, our book today is The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, a book that is part of the reason why I joined, like started this podcast. I've been waiting for someone to, to pick this yes. book. Um, I read it in ninth grade, but like I didn't really have a lot of strong feelings attached to it. I think it was like, okay, that was summer reading and, and on to the next thing. But let's talk a little bit about the world you know, that it came into. It was started as a short story that was accepted by The New Yorker in 1941. And then Pearl Harbor happened and made the piece, quote, unpublishable and was later developed into a novel in 1951. 51, everything is post-World War II, Cold War, the Korean War started the year before. 22nd Amendment is passed saying a president can only serve two terms. The Julius and Ethel Rosenberg trial happens. The U.S. Armed Forces is still stationed in Japan, even after the end of the occupation. And the first atomic bomb boosted by the inclusion of tritium is tested. And a little bit about Salinger. He was born in Manhattan in 1919. His father was a kosher cheese seller, I believe. He um, went to boarding school and then went to NYU and dropped out shortly after on his father's urging, went to work at a meat importing business in Vienna and Poland and was disgusted by that and said, that's not what I'm doing. He was drafted in 1942 and was present at Utah Beach on D-Day and the Battle of the Bulge. He met Hemingway and they got along really well in the war. They corresponded. He was in a counterintelligence unit because he was proficient in French and German, interrogating prisoners of war. He was very emotionally affected. He was hospitalized for a few weeks and later told his daughter, quote, you never really get the smell of burning flesh out of your nose, no matter how long you live. Mm. Two years after the book was published, he uh, did an interview with a high school newspaper saying that the novel was very autobiographical and that it was a great relief telling people about it. I was doing a little research before this. He managed the fencing team. It was all Mm. very, very exact. Between 1961 and 1982, Catcher in the Rye was the most censored books in high schools and libraries in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And one last thing that it just feels weird not to mention, J.D. Salinger did have a relationship when he was 53 with 18-year-old Joyce Maynard. 
And it seems like that was a pattern he was doing with several young women. And that was, you know, 30 years or so after the book was published, it feels weird not to talk about it. I recently listened to a podcast called Glamorous Trash with Chelsea Devantes that did an episode about Joyce Maynard's memoir. And so if you Mm -hmm. want to learn more about that, I suggest looking over there. It's kind of out of the scope, but just felt weird not to mention. Yeah, people have very, very strong feelings about Salinger as a person. I have zero feelings about him as a person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is your story with this book? How did how did it come to you? Why this one now? So The Catcher in the Rye was my first favorite book. And it was really the first time I ever connected to or felt inspired by art. And it was banned in my high school library, I do believe, but it was on the bookshelf in my 10th grade literature teacher's class. And we were assigned reading groups. And so we were supposed to be reading something for the entire year and to talk about, you know, what we were thinking of the books we were reading in our groups every day. And I just picked one off of his bookshelf because I hadn't picked one of my own. But most people in the class like already had something that they were reading and like had read by choice, but I had like no information about it going in, had no idea what the content was. And in the first meeting with our groups, I remember being like, this book is about nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then by the second time we met, I was like, okay, I'm absolutely obsessed with what's happening mm-hmm. not because anything interesting is happening but just because of like what's going on in the protagonist's mind and like their transparency and sharing it just yeah. feels like an authenticity I was not used to experiencing in my interactions with people yeah so I mean his teacher says to him at one point like if you read you'll understand like you're not the only one feeling this way right and I found a lot of relief in his how affected he was by the world and was also like desperate to talk to somebody and like I just enjoyed listening to him that was something I was especially struck by in this second reading because I read it in ninth grade and haven't touched it since is how I think I was getting annoyed by it and then realized I was doing the exact same thing then and now of just like I was describing it to my cousin over the weekend of like being a balloon in a cactus field of just like everything. Everything is not a physical danger, but like an emotional danger, which is just an exhausting way to live. Yes. Everything to him was an emotional danger. Yeah. And I think to me yeah. as well, like my boyfriend will be sitting on the couch doing nothing. And I'm like, he's angry at me. I know it. And it's yeah. And he does really like fearlessly address all of the things he's experiencing, like just in the like, he's so honest about those feelings of danger he's experiencing, Mm -hmm. while also like he is aware to an extent of how affected he is, Mm -hmm. but he is still trying to come off as impressive Mm -hmm. or like he doesn't realize how insecure he does feel and how insecure like he's making himself seem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Just going back to that idea that he is like describing with a sort of unawareness of himself. He's aware that the world is a scary place, but he's taking no accountability and being fearful. Yeah. 
I noticed so much of the book, like you said, it's kind of about nothing. And in the, I think that was something that I understand about myself now as a storyteller, having like gone through college and things like that, of like, I am a plot girly, I need it there. And I think that was probably something that aggravated me then. But I think in that, like you said, there is so much transparency in that character that Mm -hmm. I think is really startling. And I think especially because it's written in first person, I think that like first paragraph, if you have never seen anything like it, is really jarring to be like in English class and finally being spoken to by like a peer rather than an old fussy guy. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's probably really startling. And a previous episode we did on the first Percy Jackson book, and those opening paragraphs are surprisingly similar of direct address and of this isn't going to be what you expect. And I think it's so interesting, I think in a broad sense, to like look at how this novel has shaped literature and especially literature for young people in so many ways. Yeah, and just like the its use of language and like how he's not necessarily being transparent with the people he's interacting with, but in the way that he's describing those interactions mm-hmm. from a distance mm-hmm. and the way that he is judging everyone around him as phony and yet he is perhaps faking more than yeah. anyone else. <laughs> yeah, and there's so much of the book spent in hypotheticals of what he, like what he would have done or should have done or could have done. And I think that can be frustrating from a point of like, well, you're not actually doing anything, but I think is also reflective of all of the possible scenarios you play out and the person that you want to be and that perhaps the person inside his own mind and in those hypotheticals is more real, or at least he wants it to be more real than the person that is on display. Yeah. And his like obsession with maintaining innocence and like this rage that Mm -hmm. like comes through in like a lot of just how angry he is at everyone and how fearful he is of everyone it's like he's so indirectly describing why he is this way like it's all all occurs after the events that made him Mm -hmm. so affected and talks about those events almost none but like does such a great job of like characterizing why he is this way yeah I was looking this up shortly beforehand. The relationship between Holden and Phoebe is so, I think, precious to him. Like you were saying about wanting to protect this innocence. I think he, the character Holden, talks in very binary things of I hate this and I love this. And it seems like the only thing he really genuinely loves is childhood and purity and Phoebe and the carousel and things like that. But I was looking at beforehand about those sibling relationships because DB and Ali, uh, Ali is his brother that dies. DB is his older brother. Salinger only had one sibling, was an older sister named Doris, who's I think seven years older than him. So I like there is so much of the book about young people and about Holden's vision of young people, even though he is only 16 and existing in that weird gray space. But I thought it was so interesting that like, what was Salinger trying to do? Or what was the intent by creating this conversation? And I think the the most effective moments to me are when Holden is about to go west and Phoebe comes with her suitcase packed and says like, I, you can't go without me. What am I going to do without you? Mm. Yeah, I think in the book, the part that like turned it around for me mm-hmm was when he met with the prostitute and just wants to have a conversation with her is like so intimidated by crossing a threshold like he's interested in in what happens afterwards but he's like petrified of crossing 
yeah. that boundary and like just wants someone to assure him and like validate that it's going to be okay. Yeah. And he says that that sort of thing, like someone trying to take advantage of him has happened to him like 20 times. Mm-hmm. And you get this idea that like his childhood was like, he's so dissociated from it, like so stunted that, mm-hmm. and, and that I think is really what JD Salinger was like channeling through Holden is like this betrayal and also this obsession with like yeah. something wrong having been done to you or like taken from you. Yeah. So I remember reading it and I remember both then and now the final chapters kind of like really turn it for me of, of when he is talking to his older teacher, when he's with Phoebe and we start to sort of peeling back the layers of the onion. And as much as his brother's death affects him, it isn't, I think when I was reading it, then I was waiting for like a big reveal, like one nugget of like, this is what happened and this is the thing. And it's not just one thing. It's the cumulative experience of existing and having to go through human experiences as a child that is unequipped for it Mm -hmm. in a world that doesn't really feel like equipping him for it, I think. Yeah, he's just like looking for some support because he's been through so much that he can't process alone and describing his parents as like so private and not like wanting anyone else outside of the family to know anything about them or what's going on because like he is aware of the shame of Mm -hmm. like his neglect but unable to share it because of like a loyalty to his family and there's um, such little information about his parents, but such a wealth of information on his siblings. Yeah. yeah. I think that his obsession with innocence is like him trying to justify why he deserves support. <laughs> also, oh, like, yeah, that's like a great the, point. Because he does own up to like some some things about himself that he dislikes mm-hmm. and like ways that he interacts with people that like he doesn't necessarily find admirable but then also he's just like trying so hard to convey that he really wants to protect not just his innocence but the innocent to keep them from crossing over something that he didn't have a choice in crossing Mm -hmm. over just like trying to justify why someone should bother listening to him and that I really related to like the feeling that you need to like qualify why you deserve help. Absolutely. Yeah. There were some moments that that felt so spot on. And one of them, like you were saying, with his parents, I think I wrote it down, but he leaves school and then sort of there's like a week before he comes home because he is waiting for the information that he got expelled to reach his house before he does. And so that they'll have time to process it without him. That spoke to me so much in that, like, I almost never talked to my parents about my depression when I was in high school. I have never told my parents I'm queer, not because I, like, think they won't accept it or anything. It's just I don't want to talk about it. I just, like, don't want it to happen in a discussion. Mm. Because there's like a safety that is required for, like, certain topics, like, for you to feel comfortable revealing. And, yeah, I think that's really telling why I mean he's willing to like expose himself to like really diminished health conditions just because that's less painful than being around his family when they get this news yeah because like his view of himself is so fragile that he like really can't take 
that blow. Yeah, and that it's 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 a blow on top of a blow. Like how many mm-hmm. times has this happened? How many schools have we been to? And I think it's interesting that the teachers, I like that the book is kind of bookended with these two teachers at his current school and his previous school or a previous school. And talking with you so far has has got me thinking about kind of like what kind of role those those teachers take on as a parent because I mean, let's yeah. let's talk about the concept of boarding school as a way to emotionally stunt children, to not have yeah. like a designated person to go to. We touched on it a little bit, the language. I want to get to the phony of it all, this preoccupation mm-hmm. with authenticity and phoniness. And like we mm-hmm. said, he is, is possibly to the outside world, the most inauthentic, but only because we can see the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading the section where he was watching a Broadway play and talking about actors Everything he talks about, there is no good way. You're like acting too much or you're acting too good or not good enough. And I think as frustrating that it, as that is to read, I think it's also very telling about probably how he sees himself mm-hmm. in that there is no good or like affirmative way to exist. It's only mm-hmm. degrees of failure. Yeah. If everything is this difficult, then it must be that difficult, at least on some level for everyone else. And if they're not talking about it, then they're just lying to me and themselves. Your teen years are so isolating. And I think one thing that is so resonant about this character is sort of saying like, does anybody else see this? Mm -hmm. And that I think makes so much sense for why it touches, especially so many young people. And especially, I mean, in 51, when it came out and the world was so uncertain, and as the world continues to get more uncertain, I think it, it is such a tricky little book. And yet, so, so, so... Holden has at times such acute insight, I think, into other people. Yeah. I mean, this is a strange fact, but stay with me here. Okay. Most serial killers own a copy of this book, (laughs) if not multiple. Also, most serial killers are Pisces. Okay. This is like a, a very weird thing for me personally to connect to because I am a Pisces and I own three copies of this book. (laughs) It's just like, because I like growing up would just would watch so much Criminal Minds and was so... (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. No, yeah. me too, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was so like obsessed with psychology of cruelty. Yeah. And because I also like grew up so evangelical and was like constantly like focused on other people like instead of myself and like not inconveniencing or making them feel discomfort in any way because I was supposed to be like bringing them around (laughs) so and I think that's where this sort of fascination for me started was like a fascination with those that are suffering and I don't necessarily know that I was very aware of how much I was suffering until I read this book and like realized how much I related to his narration Mm -hmm. and I say that not to make myself look like a serial killer but just to I guess underscore that like his desperation to get this out and to understand people is like a very real threat that he perceives like because those that don't ever get it out like what becomes of those people he's like trying so hard to get people to understand how important it is to get this out yeah 
he says when he goes to the facility to have these tests done on him mm-hmm. because he gets TB after this week yeah. of just like bumming it. He says that he sees somebody that like encourages him to tell his story. And so I feel like that's Salinger leaving the audience vague enough yeah so that it could be addressed to anyone and like you said this desperation to just get it out of your body yeah and to see that it's it's not just me Mm -hmm. that's huge Mm -hmm. there is like something very cathartic about sharing just in case somebody else needs it yeah Yeah, absolutely (laughs) which I I very much did. I like really needed to hear that mm-hmm. somebody else was struggling, even if it was like some dude. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, he is just some dude. And I like yeah. deeply relatable. Absolutely. I wanted to know what you thought of, you know, it's a very iconic book in, in so many ways, but of the red hunting hat. And I feel like sometimes my questions are like, how does this relate to you? And then also like pop quiz English class time. What does it signify? <laughs> I don't know the answer, yeah. but it, it felt like this very juvenile thing on top of mm-hmm. like his tweed probably. And he's wearing it backwards and he admits to it being corny, but still likes it and still wants it. And it's like so essential to at least how we perceive him and his identity. Yeah. I don't know like the correct literary answer, <laughs> but like looking back on myself now, like I see, like I wore the same pink hoodie every day of the seventh and eighth grade <laughs> as like a barrier between me yeah. and everyone else, like trying to just like not be perceived <laughs> and also like keep myself comfortable, like mm-hmm. in a, when I just felt so like vulnerable. I also think though, like while I was reading it, just I really related to like the desire to be an individual or like have something about you that like set you apart yeah that I I really was obsessed with it for a little bit aesthetically (laughs) like I had a little hunting hat I put on all my teddy bears and oh I might still own it I don't know I didn't take it out for this but just like the way that like holding a cigarette makes you feel like kind of powerful yeah cool (laughs) like I'm I'm cool and I've I've got a little bit of a dangerous persona Mm -hmm. you don't know me I'm the guy with the hat yeah and I think there's an element yeah of like wanting to be confusing and mysterious and Mm -hmm. intrigue which it's like I want to do that too I just want to I don't know who she is but she was fun and weird (laughs) yeah although yesterday I met a bunch of new people and they will remember me as the girl who got tackled in touch rugby Oh, oh man, <laughs> played rugby yesterday. And yeah, <laughs> my boyfriend um has this like group of friends who plays every Sunday. And then yesterday he was like, "Do you want to go?" And I'm trying to get out of the house more, meet new people. So it was me and a bunch of like forty year old Australian guys. Um, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> yeah, a guy did run into me, and he was so sorry about that. He wasn't looking. He did it to another guy later on. I was just mostly surprised my glasses didn't break. My sunglasses, because they're like $30. They're real cheap things. I do feel like uh, just, I think that setting up the story with a bit about the fencing team is really brilliant because it like, I think really endears you to him right away. Even if like, he doesn't, yeah, yeah, he doesn't come out and say directly that like everyone on the team hates me. He's like trying to like play it off like it wasn't really a big deal and it was actually kind of funny that they were all bullying him but I did 
really relate to the idea that like everyone secretly hates me. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. To this day, I'm still working with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And just a fear of like being singled out as like the weird one or like the one that can't do it right. Mm-hmm. Like the one in the family that can't do it right. The one in the school that can't do it right. The one on the street that can't do it right. Yeah. You can't even like have sex with a sex worker. Right. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. One of my favorite tidbits while I was reading it was the way, I don't remember exactly what happens in this passage, but he's like at the movie theater and he can't stop thinking about this girl's legs. (laughs) And like the way that he's describing it, I don't know, it's just so real to me. (laughs) It's it's a stream of consciousness. Yeah. And I think dissociative, like you said, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. if you're on a date and I think he is intimidated by sex and so I think it's it's I certainly like went on at least I remember one date in high school where I spent like three hours trying to figure out how am I gonna hold this guy's hand and just like Mm -hmm. trying to get close and then not and and that felt I think very true and I think also like Salinger was in boarding school but I think boarding school also makes sense because it is like a form of adulthood Mm -hmm. with babies and there were so many weird moments even like in the beginning they talk a lot about necking and having sex with girls in cars, but it's a double date. You have mm-hmm. a couple necking in the front seat and in the back seat, which is wild to me. No, yeah. I went on a date in high school that was just like three couples just like all hanging out and making out on a trampoline. <laughs> yeah. It's are weird. But like he's trying so hard to like stay focused on his friend Judy with the checkers. Yeah. Like that moment of like innocent connection mm-hmm. but he can't he just can't stop mentioning the girl's legs and like the fact that he's talking about it in the past tense but he's still he's admittedly discussing his intrusive thoughts mm-hmm. in the past tense was like I couldn't believe that anyone would actually own up to something so vile yeah because like the men or like the boys in the high school that Mm -hmm. like I went to like I mean I guess I did find some camaraderie between myself and like some of the more lone wolf types that like were the same kind of unaware want you to find them impressive but you can tell that they know that they're kind of (laughs) lame yeah it's the insecurity pinning down bravado Mm mm-hmm it endears you a little bit mm-hmm. to them because it's like in a way they're like owning up indirectly to not being worthy mm-hmm. of the affection that they're craving yeah and that's what remaining silent is and like isolation is is like I want so desperately to process this but I can't and I also shouldn't make anyone I shouldn't force anyone to help me process this if they don't want to or if they're unable to which technically that's mm -hmm. what it was yeah and even if care or affection or guidance is being provided he doesn't know how to accept it like there Mm -hmm. hasn't been a way to understand or to learn that yeah because he isn't he isn't addressing actually the root of it like when his teacher is like you you should apply yourself and he's was like okay I'm gonna get up and leave because your chest looks bumpy and you're scaring me (laughs) he just wants someone to tell him that like he wants Robin Williams to like corner him and be like it's not your fault (laughs) yeah oh yeah which I think how universal is that yeah and Holden and Allie I wrote it down Allie was two years younger than Holden and died, I guess, three years before the book happened. 
And it was this detail that was really interesting to me. He broke all of the garage windows and broke his hand. Mm. And he talked about the hand as in like, it never really set right in sometimes my bones hurt when it rains, which is something a 90 year old person says. Um, And his hair is half gray already. He has this fear of like, because the adults in his life that are trying to help him don't relate to him. And the kids in his life that can relate to him don't want to help him because nobody's helping them. (laughs) So there is like that kind of punishment for being authentic with your peers is that like, why do you deserve to be authentic when I have to keep this a secret? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's something that really, when I started thinking about high school and how mentally ill I was Mm -hmm. and how much I kept it a secret, I started thinking about, well, what about all the people right next to me? Yeah. There is like a threshold where you you can no longer keep it a secret. Like it, yeah. the stakes are so high for yourself and for your sanity and like your physical safety. Like yeah. if you're at the point, which there were times like I could no longer hold it all in and like mm-hmm. would just act out in private. And when you understand those stakes, then it becomes like easier to help or listen to other people. If you haven't crossed that threshold, it is like, who do you think that you are like talking about this openly? Yeah. yeah. And there's just, there's a, a student in a later chapter talking in past tense who commits suicide right in front of him. And Holden kind of tells that story and just immediately moves on from it. Mm-hmm. But that's, and, and you don't even really find out why it was, I think that a bunch of boys wanted this kid to take back something he said. Mm-hmm. Which is such a, like, in hindsight, what a petty thing, you know, to, it's so frustrating because both when you are in it and then when you are looking back and you feel so bad for these kids that there are so many ways that the world is telling him simultaneously you are an adult and too, too old to do X, Y, and Z and have what, X, Y, and Z and also too young so that you have gray hair and you can buy time with a sex worker, but half the bars you go into, you can't get drinks yeah. and then that you feel the best when you are with these things like you said that are are innocent or are perceived or are meaningful as innocent and yet understand understand yourself as separate from it that belongs to someone else mm-hmm. and I, I think yeah there, there's a time before and a time after especially when you have mental illness and trauma and it becomes such a clear line mm. yeah there are like so many moments that he mentions and clues you into like how much they really affected his the deterioration of his mental health but he doesn't explain how like the nuns that he's talking to that like he is interested in them like he's aware that they're different that like they might even be judging him or that there is like ultimately something wrong with him because they're like more innocent than he is for some reason he doesn't want to talk to them because like they're going to ask him whether or not he's catholic and he doesn't want to have to think about that because he's a kid and he shouldn't have to think about it yet he hasn't like had time to process all these other things but Mm -hmm. like when he sees the curse word on the wall and like takes it down it's like well there's children around Mm -hmm. and like how like violent something like that could be to a child having to process 
that like they're not allowed to say it it's bad when it's said to them but it still exists in the world Mm -hmm. and none of the adults are going to do anything about it so like I guess I have to be the adult and do something about it so many moments of of exactly that of I guess Mm -hmm. I have to be the adult Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it fucks you up so much when you learn that like the people who you're supposed to be able to depend on aren't there and aren't going to do their job it's like it's it's a nightmare (laughs) yeah it's like between the states of acknowledging that you've been abandoned and also that you sometimes are abandoning yourself (laughs) yeah yeah when you're just like trying to process what has been done and can't figure out how you're going to move forward yet yeah and life keeps going and Mm -hmm. you're still back here and and have to process that and then all the things that happen in between there's no time to catch up yeah and all of the ways that like you're failing other people because you're not able to process yeah or you know I think there's like an ability to process that people have when they've had help learning how to process and if you don't have that help then it's going to the ways in which it sets you back like if you don't have help in processing what's been done to you you're not going to be able to process what you're doing to yourself. Yeah, you get you get stuck. And there's so much, something that struck me is, is that this quote, if you tell Phoebe something, she knows exactly what the hell you're talking about. And I think that is sad. Yeah. But I also think there is something like when communication is only one layer when you're a kid and you don't have to be guessing and you don't have to, when someone asks you a question, you could just genuinely answer it instead of thinking what's the right answer. Mm. And yet that quote is followed by him saying, only trouble is she's a little too affectionate sometimes. She's very emotional for a child. Mm. Children are emotional, baby. Yeah. I told you that. Yeah. She's like a little too comfortable being Mm -hmm. herself. And he like, he feels bad for what that's going to put her through. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because being a little too emotional is being a little too vulnerable Mm -hmm. and a little too open. Something I noticed that kept, it's, it's in almost every paragraph he'll say a sentence and then reaffirm it mm-hmm. of like it really does <laughs> yeah I really am and I actually got but I got a note from a director in like February that was almost the exact same thing of like I would say a line and then like shake my head I'd be like don't do that and then like shake my head or like cross my arms and she's like you are reaffirming it in body language and that makes it actually that makes us believe it less yeah if you have to to repeat it And this character is cool enough that she can just say no Mm -hmm. and just leave it and have that exist. And that's such a hard thing for me, like being definite even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's so, it's like very intentional. The characterization of him like doubting what he's saying, like Mm -hmm. he's, he's giving away what he really thinks about his school. And he says like, it actually is like a pretty, they've got like good test scores. They really do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. He feels so insecure about himself. Like he feels the need to like prove somehow that he, he was at a good school. Yeah. That's why he got kicked out is because it was hard. <laughs> yeah. And it's a sense that nothing he says will be believed. So it has yeah. to be reaffirmed. Absolutely. I think this like connection that he has with his little sister and like the pity that he feels for her is like he just wants like someone to acknowledge what a pitiful life or time he's having like because it really isn't his fault there is an extent to which we are accountable Mm -hmm. and I think the sad thing is that we 
it, it's so like fuzzy. Like and it's like a different set of rules for every person in your life. Yeah. Like you can't convince someone that like, oh, I really didn't fail at this. I was just set up to fail. Or like I only failed because I actually had my priorities straight. <laughs> yeah. And these other people didn't have like all of these challenges that I had. And until you come to terms with like everything that was set up against you like it's going to be hard not to see yourself as somebody who just like is being weeded out (laughs) as like a weak character yeah if all of these people tell me I'm deficient where what am I even supposed to do what's left Mm -hmm. for me and the sadness of like the the fascination that you have with like what's been done to you Mm -hmm. and like repeating it to try and process it and like understand the situation that you were in and like what kind of person you are. Yeah. I think doing the math, like he, he was in that slaughterhouse thing when he was, I think 17. I think he started in the war when he was 20 or 21, Mm. which is, which is, it's basically your teen years. It's still, it feels so much like a part of childhood, like, and being in some of the worst of it and being in D-Day and beating in Battle of the Bulge. And it did tickle me that, at one point, Holden says that DB got him to read A Farewell to Arms. And he really, I think he liked it. I don't know. There's something strange about like his repulsion for movies mm-hmm. and like his preference for what's written, which I really, you know, I work in film, but I really appreciate literature that's like told from a very realistic point of view like an authentic voice Mm -hmm. because like so much of the movies that we see like it looks real and it's like portrayed but like the real world but it's really not being conveyed from like an authentic voice it's like a fantastic idealized spectacular world and it's being portrayed as you know something real in the physical world and there's something about literature that like allows you to put yourself in it and like process visually like in the way that you need to and that all of those little decisions are are yourself you know or are your own Mm -hmm, in the mm -hmm. you know a production designer isn't isn't setting it up for you and telling you what to see a writer isn't telling you what to think and an actor isn't interpreting those things for you absolutely and I think it makes sense that he has this aversion towards performance although I did look Mm -hmm. uh, when I was doing this research J.D. Salinger apparently wasn't like an actor I think in high school Mm -hmm. and was like very much had a talent for it and his dad said that's not a career and he can't do that but I think that's also like the more I act the more I understand how close acting and writing is the difference is mostly scope and that an actor you're on one character Mm -hmm. and in the rest you're you're seeing how does this affect that and that affect that and that affect that Mm -hmm. yeah we're just like attempting to do the best job that we can at like conveying real authentic details Mm -hmm. but yeah there is like so much freedom in like your mind automatically creating those details subconsciously for you without all of the like thought and planning to make it like relatable to the most amount of people or or if not the most amount of people to help the most amount of people relate to someone that might be difficult to relate to. Yeah. But I'm very um, glad that Salinger was able to get this out just because it's conveyed to me the importance of sharing your experience in general 
I tend to be a lot more hopeful in the stories yeah. that I tell now, but like, definitely there is a space that you have to move through Yeah, of being authentic with the darker, more shadowy parts of your identity before you can even be hopeful. Yeah. And that I think the first step in, in opening those is to open it a tiny bit and call it phony and pack it away. Yeah. There's something so, because it's stream of consciousness, the writing doesn't seem super polished by like literary standards, but is definitely mm-hmm. very purposeful. Yeah. And you get to the end of it. And, and even at the beginning, I think you do feel like, like Holden and Salinger to a degree have like pulled this hurt from inside mm-hmm. their body and handed it to you on a plate still gushing and pumping and and flinching and said like please this is it can you get it can you appreciate my sacrifice here yeah I was so afraid to like compose anything in high school Mm -hmm. like I tried to make art but I didn't want to put any thought into it at all because it did feel like hiding what was what I was actually feeling and that did not feel like art So it's been like a crazy journey to be like, no, it's okay to put thought into what you want to say and think about like how best to say it. But I do think that there is like something really beautiful and valuable in exposing your stream of consciousness Mm -hmm. and like making that available just so other people can experience like the authentic you, yeah, like people that don't necessarily experience themselves authentically. Yeah. And I think that's when the internet and when social media is very good and very beautiful and a force for good in the world, which is is less often than the other version, but does happen. I think that's that's what makes it successful is mm-hmm. I remember in high school, one girl would always preface her Facebook posts with like, has anyone ever thought this? And we would talk behind her and be like, yes, people have had that thought before. But that's not the point. The point is sharing this thing that feels secret because it all feels secret and it all feels like it's never happened to anyone before. Holden has this thing of wanting to return to childhood, but for him, there's this mental Rubicon and you can just never get to it. And it's easy Mm -hmm. for like me, a 25 year old to say like, you can still do it. Mm -hmm. But I know that's not what it felt like to me then. And it's that I couldn't also do it. I couldn't become 16 again now, you know? Yeah. I remember like when I would share art with my mom or somebody in my community like the concern that they would have that I would listen to something similar to that like that I would take in information like that that like I would be exposed to those feelings that I would express those feelings and it's like this is very actually joyful for me like Mm -hmm. to experience somebody else having feelings that I don't want to admit that I'm having is like such a celebration and a relief Mm -hmm. and to be able to feel secure enough in the safety of this moment that I could express those feelings is like just such a triumph. You saying that makes me think of one of the things that Salinger's personal life is best known for is is being reclusive mm-hmm. and that sort of catcher in the eye. He's not a one hit wonder, but I think very few people can name. I can't name more than two titles by him. Well, his uh, short stories actually, mm-hmm. and and that's why I loved him so much at the yeah. beginning is because I had like this not fear of commitment, but like mm-hmm. I didn't even have the energy to get through a book. Yeah, and it's because they were I couldn't relate to like hopeful 
yeah. sort of like narrative. I really did not care about what was happening to this princess across the ocean. Like I just wanted to hear people scream into the void. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I loved poetry so much. And his short stories, like they're so intense and you can mm-hmm. feel so much in such a short amount of time. And he would like have a lot of stories like published in papers. Mm-hmm. And yeah. yeah, I think yeah. this was originally published in two volumes maybe Mm -hmm. once you give that intense uh, hurt and vulnerability and lay it all out there and give it to the world I think like it makes a lot of sense to then hide and not yes want to be seen I mean even Holden talks about that at the end of of running away and what that life would be like and I think about that all the time of of just Mm. what who am I if it's just me and no one else in the room Mm-hmm. But it is a different world now and like mm-hmm. partly because of authors that have been through a lot of darkness and expressed a lot of darkness and like empowered people to share difficult feelings and emotions. The more that you receive feedback from people about them relating to what you're experiencing, the more empowered you feel to share not just the difficulty that you experience, but like relief. Yeah. And like sharing relief, like gives other people hope. And I just think that it's the medicine that we all need is like being able to relate to difficulty and also overcoming difficulty. Yeah. Which not necessarily mentioned in this book, the overcoming part, (laughs) but. But you have to do it in baby step. It it might be. He says, don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. Sad. Yeah. Like you were saying, if you if you build up a wall to keep yourself safe, you're also keeping out everything. Yeah. It's also the things that could help. I do feel like expressing yourself is like a practice and having Mm -hmm. compassion for yourself. Absolutely. When other people give you the template and show you how, it becomes a lot easier to do it yourself. Yeah. But even like like he says, don't tell anybody anything. But, you know, he, he also admits in an interview to being like to finding so much relief. Mm-hmm. And that's he just telling. Yeah, that's the, yeah. the process of the book is the telling of it. Yeah, it, it's just like the pain of it, allowing yourself to experience loss and like process difficult emotions, abandonment or neglect or just disappointment in adulthood. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay to miss in a sense. <laughs> that was something I noticed kind of bookending it in the beginning he's leaving Pensy that he needed you need to know you're leaving a place when you leave it you need to be able in your mind to like consciously close that chapter and then when he is trying to meet Phoebe in the museum to say goodbye he says the best thing though in that museum was that everything always stayed right where it was and then he says about phoebe i thought she'd see the same stuff i used to see and how she'd be different every time oh man i have like when i was a freshman in college i remember thinking like is okay is stuff gonna change this much all the time or is just like the one time things changed a bunch but things do change like crazy Yeah. And I, I'm an only child. So I guess I never considered this of like having younger siblings and older siblings is like sort of their change can be a measuring stick for your own. And to see them so different, you then there's a moment of self-reflection of like, well, how different am I? 
and knowing yourself in one moment is so hard. Knowing your past self and how that affects your current self and what future self do you want to be? That's so hard. And like so much of holding this 16 year old with so much of his life ahead, there's like almost no discussion of the future until the very end. What was that first quote that you said about Phoebe? I found it. I hate that. I don't care if it's a sad goodbye or a bad goodbye, but when I leave a place, I like to know I'm leaving it. If you don't, you feel even worse. That's just getting. Mm-hmm. I think that was something that that made college starting college easier for me is I had so firmly mentally closed the book on high school and my high school friends. Mm-hmm. I had spent from Christmas or from January, as soon as that year started, I was like, I, I could feel myself detaching and distancing. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I just found the checkout sheet in the back of the book from all oh. the high school that read it before me. That's cute. I guess this is the same copy I had in high school that I stole. Sure. Trying to see if I underlined anything. Yeah. I hate losing my train of thought. <laughs> when they just start touching on the future, when he's with Mr. Antolini, he talks about being a lawyer, like, or maybe this is with Phoebe, being a lawyer like their dad. And he talks about, you know, being a lawyer and testifying and being on the sand. He goes, how would you know you weren't being a phony? And I mm. feel like that's that's the whole book a little bit for Holden is, am I doing it right? And am I doing it right to other people's standards and my own? Am I being similar enough, but also different enough? The last line, the don't ever tell anybody anything. Mm-hmm. I was remembering like sharing and still, still I struggle with like not being uncomfortable or not feeling like I've overshared. I used to say that I felt like I'd been deflated when I talk too much about myself like I was a balloon and I let too much air out yeah I think that's really a shame that we are so hesitant to share and it is like a lot easier to like separate yourself and like have a character spill their guts than it is for like you to admit to like needing to confess something or like wanting to share something or like feeling isolated it's like an embarrassing feeling almost but I think that like when you share you're holding space for other people to feel confident in sharing it's an invitation to like look foolish and like it's okay you'll learn I've had moments when I'm writing and and write a bit of dialogue and realize like oh that that's me telling myself something and I Mm. yeah I can't listen to that right now but I'll come back to it in editing yeah I think there's like a fear that we have that other people will think that we're self-important yeah and I think that's definitely expressing yeah I think that that is like I guess a healthy fear like nobody like wants to take themselves too seriously or like appear to be someone that takes themselves seriously but I think that like once you acknowledge that the reason that you would share is for other people then it makes it less taboo yeah the reason can't be that I just needed to talk about it yeah because if if you really needed it so bad then it wouldn't feel so bad to share (laughs) oh you are capable of processing your own emotions it's just that you feel so bad for yourself that you had to do it alone that is like what is compelling you to share This is editor Aaron. I don't know why my audio gets so bad here. I have a like a fancy little microphone 
And later that day, I recorded another episode. I don't think I even unplugged anything. The setup was exactly the same. And yet it sounds so much better in the next episode. So I don't know what happened. And if this conversation at this point mostly sounds like Katie, that's not their fault. That's my fault. I don't know what happened. Okay, back to the show. And that's what I really related to so much was just like this desire to save others like that I really appreciated experiencing in someone else or like someone else admitting to because I I felt really like judged for having like a savior complex like and like have done so much contemplation about like, you know, is it really empathy to feel the need to save others and I mean yeah it's it's empathy for yourself like like, that you want to be what you didn't have there's going back to your childhood self and and trying to fix it all before it happened Mm -hmm. so I think Holden's all right yeah I mean it's it's right there in the title of wanting to to catch something yeah I think like it's funny the way that he he can present this character in a way that really does like make you feel an amount of animosity for him that's true <laughs> it is an extreme accomplishment because i've read books where i've gotten frustrated with the author just because it's bad this is crafted this is art and i think yeah. like i very much any teen there's going to be at least 30 co- like holding coffeefields in every high school class mm-hmm. you know but like the affection that you also feel for him I don't know. It's very crafty of him to like, because I always wondered how much J.D. Salinger saw himself in Holden because like you do feel pity and admiration for him, even though he's such a jackass. Yeah. I think that was when I was in high school, I didn't talk about my depression a lot. And then one summer during college, I was back home and I was talking to a friend from that time. Who had just experienced depression for the first time and she said it changed my life she said i don't know how you could be that brave and deal with it every single day mm. and i think there's an element with salinger and with holden of doing that even if reaffirming to like it is so hard for holden to get through this week just mentally exhausted and physically exhausted it takes a toll on his body to someone who hasn't gone through that salinger makes makes the struggle physical makes it easier to see like that maybe you'll see yourself in Holden or maybe you'll see your friend in Holden and mm-hmm. figure out a little bit of empathy there yeah the fact that he could have lost his mind but he didn't like he just drove himself to physical sickness mm-hmm. speaks to like yeah people don't understand why you would not ask for help if they don't understand that like it's more dangerous to ask for help than it is to deal with it like I remember literally just like I mean I just had no awareness of like how unsafe I felt in sharing even though I'd be like in a fetal position every night like Mm -hmm. just so feeling so alone that I couldn't go through those emotions with somebody that I had to be alone and then like leaving home and coming back and all of a sudden it was safe because that that was no longer like where I had to live my life like I could leave Mm -hmm. I could go and communicate what I was feeling and then leave afterwards and I was just Mm -hmm. so angry yeah like couldn't control 
my interactions with the people that I had to silence myself around, like so mad that I wasn't able to share with them and, and had to go through everything alone and like what that did to me physically definitely felt like punching a few windows out. But yeah, I think it's it's so frustrating to be a child and to say, I have needs and you're not even giving me like the right to need. I like describe it as, well, when someone is unintentionally neglectful, like the complexity of helping them understand that, because when you have like the best intentions and like it, something still goes wrong, like there's this desire to be defensive Mm -hmm. but like if you run over a kid and you just get out of the car and spend your time trying to defend that you're not a bad driver Mm -hmm. instead of taking the kid to the hospital that's neglect like yeah you have to pay attention to needs yeah I think it's always why did you never tell us and it's should be why didn't you see I was 16 I wasn't hiding it well Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to do that Mm -hmm. absolutely like there were nights I was up crying and I now as an adult I'm like I don't think I was that quiet actually I think people were awake and could hear and chose to let me do that on my own yeah oh man oh man oh man (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean, I think about just like the way that I was behaving in school. Why did a teacher not ask me if I was okay? Because I was very, very obviously not okay. And it is just this fear of acknowledging deficiency. uh, And we feel like we'll be inadequate to like change it. And it's like, sometimes just acknowledging it is like, because you're a child, you've never experienced it before you genuinely don't know if anyone else has ever felt like that. I don't remember if this was really in the book or not, maybe with some of the girls or even with the sex worker, I think there's these like botched attempts at vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, and I'll loop this back around. I wanted to ask you if you, this is the 12th episode we've done at this podcast and at least half the books are about Manhattan and I I wanted to know just like if that really informed part of your life because there was a time where I was like defining myself of I'm gonna live in New York and I'm gonna go to college in New York yeah I always thought I would move to New York until I was a senior in college and came out to LA I really had no interest in being on the west coast because like I saw New York as a place like that was accepting of alternative personalities (laughs) and I mean now I see New York as like it's just so much more established than Mm -hmm. LA and like very I think even more competitive and maybe unwelcoming even though it's like very accepting of different personalities I think that LA has very high standards (laughs) for the caliber of people they that like truly succeed just because it's hard to make it out here Mm -hmm. financially and energetically (laughs) but I do think that like LA is a lot more welcoming and collaborative and the feeling of arriving in LA has so much more like help and community I feel New York feels like I'm taking a breath in like bracing myself or something and LA feels like you're exhaling yeah New York is a little bit like okay 
life has to be hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Life has to be hard. Life has to be a hundred miles a minute. Yeah. Um, I felt like I couldn't, and city that never sleeps. I thought I wouldn't be able to sleep in New York. Like it's just, yeah. it feels hard enough. Like we were saying to like take a break and process things, but I can do that in LA. Yeah. Like there's, I've, I've had the ability to be like, you know what? I need to hibernate for six months and uh, just hang out. Yeah. It's and, not as like cold and punishing. I've had like, I've taken a lot of breaks this year. It's mm-hmm. been wonderful. <laughs> Me too. I'm, am I, have I taken a, a whole year off? Maybe. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. No, I think it's incredibly mature to be easy on yourself and like acknowledge what it is that you actually physically and emotionally need because like the world is so fixated Mm -hmm. on productivity and competition and like status and it's just like so deeply unimportant <laughs> yeah my favorite thing to say like when something goes wrong on a set or something or like when I was working in development it's like we could have all been doctors yeah we could have all been performing heart surgery right now and we're here doing this it's just television yeah. <laughs> or like that was something when we were shooting flash crystal would turn around to me and be like do they remember what playing pretend <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know true. yeah I have a phrase that I like told to me by a professor which is you get paid for erasing mm. same as drawing <laughs> yeah yeah feels good yeah <laughs> I think that is something surprising that I I think is sort of you know the podcast and, and especially with this book is like cutting myself a break because how badly this kid needs a break and how badly I need a break that um, yes I think like <sighs> adulthood is like okay like losing innocence is like so hard but it's also like your chance to like define safety like create what you You get to know yeah Yeah. like to live in an unsafe world and to feel safe yeah is like I feel like adulthood is comforting in that way like the autonomy of like creating what you need yeah I think that was in the last section of the teacher Mr. Antolini keeps talking about a fall coming for Holden and and that you're going to die nobly for an unworthy cause. And I I was talking to, this is a complicated family tree, but I was talking to my first cousin about my second cousin. And, <laughs> and my first cousin is about my parents' age and my second cousin um, just finished high school. And my first cousin has all these worries and all these concerns. And, you know, the younger one is doing this and doing that. And I had to tell her, like, she's like 19. She's going to get hurt real bad real soon. Everyone in that four years out of high school, you're going to have something devastating happen mm. or something will become devastating because it's time and you have to sort of for me it was a breakup and also in high school like this is way distant but I wanted to go to NYU and I had so much of my personality based in it I had like taken classes there in the summer and then I got rejected from them I remember I was literally taking a shit when it happened I was reading my phone and my whole world fell out from under me. And it was those moments of like, ultimately, New York was not the right place for me. I went to a college that I loved in a city that I loved and ended up in a great place. But like childhood is a time of such strong emotions that you have to fall from a really great height in order to to build your adult self up. Yeah. Looking back, you know, I realized some people have like 
extremely traumatic childhoods Mm -hmm. I just feel like I like endured a lot of trauma very early on Mm -hmm. like and I remember feeling so different than everyone around me in what I was okay in like the discomfort I was okay with feeling or just like a desire to like experience it all of it right now so I can just be oh. happy eventually like like rush through it or like yeah I did I was not like in a hurry mm-hmm. to comfort myself like some people just wanted to like pad themselves and like tend their wounds even mm-hmm. but I was like no I'm gonna feel this yeah like for as long as I feel it and I'm gonna feel it like really hard because I'm gonna get the fuck over it <laughs> And that sounds horrifically painful. And also, I I feel a lot of admiration for that for, you know, for for feeling things on your own terms. I just had this respect for my future self in like the I just felt where I desired to be capable enough to deal with it in the present. And uh, it was really rough. But I have a lot of gratitude (laughs) for my Mm -hmm. adolescent self and like just not repressing what I was going through for for too long (laughs) I repressed a little bit unintentionally but Mm -hmm. and I think that Holden does this too like just being so upfront with yourself Mm -hmm. maybe like you don't understand all of it but like attacking what you don't Mm -hmm. understand like gets you to I mean I guess that fall that he's talking about like I had already experienced that yeah Yeah. (laughs) and and I think that probably I mean I don't know how Holden responds in that situation but it does strike me as mm, I guess I guess what he's saying is like right now you still have like the financial support of your parents and like Mm -hmm. you're in a position where this is not as bad as it's gonna get and that I do relate to because like things are logistically harder yeah they were back then and I think that that's why I appreciate so much being able to like come out on the other side of that loss of innocence and like having had processed it yeah I wonder if if Holden has had that fall and that's you know mostly the death of his brother Mm -hmm. and the teacher is telling him like you are currently in the only time you will have like you said, logistically mm-hmm. to get through this. So let's try to get everything as as healed up as we can before we're sent out into the real world. Yeah. Yeah. That that I just got goosebumps. It makes it it makes the ending a little bit nicer. Yeah. Like I think that his courage in saying like, don't talk about it, it'll just make you miss everybody is like that bravery in feeling loss as it happens. Yeah. Because even then it is, I, I think something maybe startling about that end is is that there's a vulnerability in just saying that I miss people. Yeah. And just having empathy, like in this world where like there are so many people that are affected and unwilling to admit it and like the way that they hold on to like their identity or like they, I, I feel like it's interesting that like Holden refers to everyone else as phony because there are a lot of adults that only think of themselves as phony yeah and the way that they react when confronted about Mm -hmm. themselves is I feel like so damaging Mm -hmm. to 
your ego, like to interact with people in like such an inauthentic way that you feel threatened by being challenged, Mm -hmm. which he like, he does feel threatened by it, like enough to run away, but then he doesn't run very far. He has that clarity that you're talking about in the whole setup of the book. He he says, I'm going to process this on my own. I'm going to give myself a week, which I think like reads as crazy because he is 16 and also reads as crazy from a level of like emotional intelligence and knowing what he needs, especially because he knows as soon as I return, I am going to be employed in maintaining the emotions of others in Mm. in my mom and my dad. So I got to get this stuff wrapped up real quick because I know what it's going to be waiting for me. Man, absolutely. Like, and I did feel like growing up, I felt a little bit stalled knowing that if I were to confess how I was feeling to anyone, it would immediately make it worse. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Like knowing my mom does not have the bandwidth for this. My dad does not have the bandwidth to know this. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I gotta have the bandwidth. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I remember a project, a performance project I did in college that like for me was really just opening this daunting mm-hmm. can of worms yeah. like my experience leaving the church and like how much danger I felt yeah. in myself and like the feedback I got was like it's a little long <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think that yeah like the importance of experiencing or like having adults model like overcoming yeah things like that I think for the people that are unable to envision themselves overcoming Mm -hmm. what they're going through, like having it modeled for you is game changing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, how do you feel having read it again as an adult? I feel like I understand him so much better Mm -hmm. than I did at first. Like just like his personality, like the way that like he is so uncomfortable with change I don't think that I when reading it as a teenager I hadn't experienced what was coming and so I didn't understand like what that was saying about the type of person he was Mm. and uh, I think that J.D. Salinger writing this as an adult from the perspective of a teenager is like he really informs like his thought processes so well Mm -hmm. yeah and I can see my adolescent self better in him now Mm -hmm. like I think the first time that I read it I was just amazed that like somebody could convey transparency Mm -hmm. and now I read it and I'm like Holden's fucked up (laughs) Yeah. yeah and I was a lot more fucked up than I maybe you know you do you think everyone must be experiencing something like that or you're just like maladapted like yeah you just think everyone else is handling it and you can't you're too weak yeah that's exactly how I felt as an adult you realize like no you just got fucked (laughs) like you're you're just a child like you don't know how yet and someone should be there helping you Mm mm-hmm But it's nice to, I don't know, the first time I read it, I was looking up so much to J.D. Salinger and like his creativity and Mm -hmm. like his voice and his use of language. And it is very interesting now to read it again and still 
admire those aspects, but also understanding the ego involved in the telling of the story also is like, Mm -hmm. I'm just happy that I could read this and no longer relate to it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I think it was like rereading it for me was kind of unpleasant because I had aged out of this phase and it was so in that phase and it, it just hurt, you know, like it it was too good of a reflective surface on something I had kind of packed away. Yeah. Like feeling more pity now than for me, I, you know, didn't feel confronted as much as I just felt relieved. Um, I guess because like I did not feel like I had a choice in whether or not I would I I didn't necessarily need a mirror Mm -hmm. I just needed a friend like to relate to somebody yeah to not be alone Mm -hmm. absolutely would you consider it required reading oh I think that for some people it's required reading Mm -hmm. I mean I think that yeah if you read it and it (laughs) Man, that's, it's difficult because I guess some people do feel a sense of like celebration in their effectiveness. Would you say it's required to get to know you, understand you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think it'll find you. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you like seek it out. I think that, you know, it, it, I I don't even think it jumps out at people. Mm -hmm. I think like, this is a book you find by accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. like, what is the catcher in the rye, you know, about yeah. like, what is that trying? You don't get like any context, mm-hmm. but um, if you can make it through the book and feel intrigued enough to keep going, then there's probably something wrong with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I really wonder if I had read this book like one year later or two years later than I actually did. I read it right before ninth grade and like 11th grade was the worst for me. That was the toughest. And I wonder if like, I just was a tiny bit not ready to hear it. I didn't need it just yet, I think. Definitely. Yeah, probably I found it like at exactly the right time. I think that, man, if I had read this any sooner, I would have been so scandalized. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah was I was pretty scandalized by this book. Yeah, I was surprised in hindsight, having gone back to the text and like knowing all the events in it. I'm not surprised people would want to ban this book at the bare minimum because you have a 16 year old boy about to have sex with a sex worker. Like I understand just not wanting to deal with that in a classroom setting. But I, I like the way that it was done for me and that it was like required as an option of like one of four. And I think definitely like remembering some of the kids, some of the other kids who read that book that summer who like picked it, like the goth girl was in there. There were some other kids who maybe were like more clearly or now with hindsight, more like on the same mental illness level. I think that Mr. Thompson, whom I love so dearly, was very smart in his just making this available to us. Yeah. And I feel like really the reason that it scandalized me was just like the open admission of adolescent depression, Mm -hmm. mental health struggles, like, and the severity of it and like the honesty 
And I feel like they don't, uh, to me, that's why it was not available to mm-hmm. high schoolers is because they didn't want to deal with the activation mm-hmm. of those like parts of our yeah. psyche. And it definitely like activated me and like clued me into like what I was experiencing and the depth of what I was experiencing. And I think that it would be a great world if it were required mm-hmm. reading, just because like as a writer, this is really the model for me mm-hmm. of how to invite somebody to relate to someone that they would feel challenged yeah. by. It's putting such an inward experience out into the world. Mm-hmm. I think you've touched on this. It, there's such a startling moment of reading it and being like, we're not supposed to talk about this. Yes. He's talking about it. Yeah. I didn't know I was allowed to talk about it. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That like, it just like pops the bubble of your own inward experience. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I can share. Like, and I can really share every little thing. Like I can share my intrusive thoughts. Like I can share the the thing I'm thinking about that I know that I shouldn't be thinking about that I can't stop thinking about like Mm -hmm. I can share everything Mm -hmm. and actually other people might like that and it might help them I'm really glad this book exists and I'm glad I revisited it me too I didn't actually get all the way through but I will (laughs) I was like cramming the last chapter um as I was like making myself coffee getting lunch ready (laughs) yeah man that's a really you've got a really great excuse to read (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was weird because I kind of scheduled myself into a, a little bit of a corner, which is just my fault and it's I'm learning. But I so I was like, am I gonna have to like stay up all night to finish my reading for tomorrow's class? It was a really kind of surreal moment. It was like, am I gonna have things to say in the discussion today? Oh, it's kind so of delightful sorry. a little bit. Is there anything else you want to add? Just that holding Caulfield. If I met you today, we'd fight. Yeah. That's all. Holden Caulfield at 16 or like at our age? No, I'd fight him. I'd fight him. I'd fight a (laughs) (laughs) 16-year-old. Good. Only verbal. Is there there anything you'd like to plug? Where can people find you? Well, my poetry account is Catherine the Poet, St. Catherine Mary on Instagram. I guess you could follow that. That'd be cool. Yeah. And book coming out early next year. Yeah. Follow my Instagram so you don't miss it. I think probably the title is Healing Curses. Wow. That's amazing. I'm so proud of you. That's amazing. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I had fun. Me too. That's the end of our episode. Thank you so much to Katie for joining me and you for listening. For a book I was not really excited to reread, this was such a phenomenal conversation. Katie's mind and the things that they talked about. Um, There's just such vulnerability and so much insight in, in this little gem of an episode. Next week, very different vibes. Kira Sullivan and Maddie Hart join me again to discuss hunger games again we tried to stay focused on catching fire there's too much excitement and joy to sorry i'm looking at myself in the mirror and frankly i got distracted she's looking pretty cute today 
You can find me at Erin R. Bowles on all social platforms. I got my start making little internet sketches and videos, and I'm really trying to get back to that, I promise. The R stands for... Radish. Yeah, I'll take that. Okay, see you next week. Thanks. Love you. Bye.